Hi, Filmatics. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a very special guest. It is one of my favorite writers and directors. We have Michael Gibbons, who is an, a writer, director, and a cinematographer. Michael, welcome to the show. Mary Lynn, how are you? I'm great. Can you let our audience know where we are recording you live today from? Sure. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta. Well, how's the weather out there right now? Well, it's in the 70s. It's, uh, it's decided to send that uh, wandering vortex back to where it belongs, and uh, we're back to normal weather. Oh, great. And um, some, some things that people might not know about you that we're going to talk about is not only you're a film director, a cinematographer for one of the greatest directors ever, uh, but you're also an acting coach, hyp hypnosis, and um, at Creative Awakenings. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you about that. But so, uh, Michael, I just want to ask, um, growing up, did you go to, you know, did you have a favorite um, childhood film that you liked? That's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> when I was a child, I lived in the hills of South Carolina in a little town called Pickens. It's a lovely place, wonderful place. And they had a movie theater there which was a really beautiful building at the end of Main Street, and it was called The Pick, uh, which, you know, like pictures and pickings, and it was a beautiful stone building on the side of a hill. And it never functioned my life. My parents went to see movies there, but I didn't see that. I grew up with an old television with that round screen. It was black and white. It sounds like I come from, you know, the... Uh, 19th century, but I'm actually not. <laughs> but um, I, honestly, um, I actually don't remember that many films from when I was a little child. Oh well, that's okay. You probably played outdoors and, and probably used your imagination. Did you play like I? Did you play outside? You were in the um, hills, so did you use your imagination? Did you play cops and robbers? Yes. It, well, as a matter of fact, I mean that's the funny thing is that like I, literally when I was a child, I would play like I was making movies. I had no idea how to, you know, get into that sort of thing, but that's all that I ever wanted to do since I was a kid. And I must say that does sort of smack of that sort of, you know, uh, when you write your first, you know, bio that you put up on some website and you say, you know, the Klieg lights were calling when you were a child. And uh, I guess that can happen. It, uh, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, well, playing outside, um, playing, playing is using your imagination and, and like, it's, you know, uh, being a kid, enjoying your life. Um, I remember playing outdoors because I live so far away from everyone. I was 20 miles away from the kids. I even made mud little creek, little families and played with them. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember when we played Gilligan's Island, we played Gilligan's Island, playing in the trees and the huts. I go, I want to be Gilligan. So it's called Gilliganette. Wow. You wanted to be Gilligan? You didn't want to be Mary Ann? No, because Gilligan Gosh. had all the fun. I was you know, like, we just lost Mary Ann. She was oh. a yeah. Oh, that's sad. But I, because he had all the fun and all the adventures. So um, I guess I was like, I guess protesting, not protesting, but like all oh, the boys have all the fun. But anyhow, I want to ask you uh, on our show, you know, you probably know by now, I love the Criterion movie collections. When I see one of those beautiful, stunning movies like Bicycle Thief or Cinema Paradiso, which sounds like your little theater sounds like Cinema Paradiso, like the boy in Cinema Paradiso. I cry when I see those movies because they're so beautiful. Do you have a, a favorite one or one of a favorite one that you like in that a collection? Let me let me just say this. Uh, for one thing, I remember when Criterion came out and started releasing 
films. And uh, very few people were happier than I was about that because here was a, a company that was dedicated to not only re-releasing classic, beautiful films, but also thoughtful films and some films that were off the beaten track. And they not only released them, but they would usually remaster them and uh, make better prints of them. And they just did such a good thing for the world, I think, to be able to uh, to, to present these things. I, I mean, you know, of course you can point at the, you know, Citizen Kane's and things like that that they released that were just wonderful, but also the real esoteric things. And you mentioned San, Cinema uh, Paradiso. What a wonderful, wonderful story. And uh, this, it, 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 it uh, the only thing that's different from my own story is that I never worked in the theater. In fact, when I was, gosh, I guess when I was in junior high school, they tore the building down and put up a, a Western Auto. I purposely never traded with Western Auto because I was so pissed off about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how dare they? I mean, I, I mean, I, I couldn't have stayed there and made the sort of living that I do, you know. Uh, but I, I, I wish that I could have, you know, restored that cinema. And it should be showing films and, you know, treat it like a, a sort of criterion cinema that would show these great films. It's just a shame. I mean, that, you know, I mean, but of course, yeah, I, I sound like an old guy, you know, things were better in the old days, but uh, actually things were better in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's something just really beautiful about going uh, into a theater and having that experience, watching it in that little, you know, that the, oh, the dark room. And you seeing that big you're, screen, you're you're actually now opening a box because this is this is a this is a big problem that I have. I mean, I, I see some of the greatest people in film that you know drift over into the streaming world, and of course, all of us have to make product that goes into the streaming world because that's just part of distribution. But as Cecil B. DeMille, I think, is the one that said that cinema is a dream, and Back when Cecil B. DeMille was making films, you know, you would go to the cinema, you would sit down in a, a lit cinema, the lights would dim down, the curtain would slowly open up, and a projector would take you on a journey of a story. And when it was over, the lights would come up gently, the curtains would close, and you would leave and discuss it. That's a dream. A dream is a story that's being told, unless it's a lucid dream, is a dream that you cannot control. You're just involved with it. And that's what a movie is. And when you go to the cinema, I mean, think of it this way. You know, oftentimes you go to the cinema, if you have children, you get a babysitter, you go out to dinner, you go to the cinema, or you go to the cinema where they feed you and they drink you, and, and it's an event. It is an event to see a movie. When you have something at home, I don't care how big your screen is at home. If you have a pause button, it is not a thing. <laughs> you can look at your, at, at your buddy or your spouse or your dog or whatever and say, let's finish this tomorrow. It's not an event. And we need cinemas in this country and around the world for that event. <clears throat> that event can't be matched because it literally is a dream. Now, the other end of that is that film is the strongest, most powerful form of propaganda in the history of the world. And that's where you have to be careful because 
messages are sent to people in countries all over the world that are literally designed to change society. Now we could talk all day about that. And that's probably not what you want to hear, but that is a fact. Well, I, well, well, let's get into like, um, my favorite thing about you is that you are a brilliant cinematographer director and you worked with five time Emmy. Uh, oh my gosh. Ridley Scott nominated a five-time Academy Award nominated director and cinematographer. So can you share with us um, some of your experiences working with Ridley Scott? (laughs) Man, (laughs) let me tell you, nothing gives me more pleasure than to talk about Ridley Scott. (laughs) I firmly believe, it's just my opinion, but I think there's a lot of people that share this opinion. Ridley Scott is the most Oh, gosh. I mean, he, he just makes the most intelligent, sophisticated movies. Uh, you know, he's, he's made a few that uh, were not great, but consistently, he is absolutely brilliant. And his attention to detail and his understanding of the way to tell a story through actors, through pictures, through music is unbelievable. I'm going to tell you this about Ridley. And... Uh, the way that I met him and the way that I started working with him was, is a wonderful story in itself. But that man, there is not a single job that's being done by another human being on the set that Ridley could not do. But what's wonderful about Ridley is that the way he works is that he gets together a group of people that he thinks are the best people for that project. And he's pretty much always right. And then he sits down with them and he presents things to them. And I got to tell you, I was in my daggum 20s when I was going around the world with Ridley Scott shooting advertising. And this guy, when he would say to me, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is what the scene is. And what are you going to do? And then I would tell him how I was going to light it and where I was thinking of, of lensing it from. And what, I mean, for me, when I was you know, 28, 29 years old, and he, he would look at me and say, like, that's great. And sometimes he would say, but let's also do this or let's do that. Because he has this way of just getting the best out of anybody that he's working with. He's brilliant. Oh, my gosh. So how was it working on Alien? Can you tell us a little bit about Alien? No, because I didn't do that. Oh, but what, okay. I, what I can tell you, let me just tell you how I ended up working with him he originally asked me to shoot the second unit of blade runner not blade runner i'm sorry but black rain he asked me to do the second unit of black rain i just wasn't available but i took the meeting anyway and um i went and met with him and i met with um somebody else who i'm not going to name because i'm going to say something that he said that was um I'll I'll just tell you. Um, I went to meet with somebody. It wasn't his producer. It was somebody else. And that person told me, or rather warned me, that Ridley Scott uh, eats cameramen for breakfast, and he's afraid of actors, and he hides behind the camera away from the actors. And as this guy said this to me, I'm the sort of person that I, I make my opinions about people based on my experience with people, 
not on my experience of listening to somebody else tell me about a person. Everybody sees through their own set of binoculars, and those set of binoculars are tainted by whatever has happened in their own life. And also, it's grandized by anything that's happened in their life. So in other words, whatever has affected that person throughout their life or their previous lives or what have you, that is what creates that person's worldview. And so when that person said that to me, I just said to myself, hmm, we're talking about Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott is the, is the Rembrandt of the 20th century. This was in the 20th century. So he's the Rembrandt of the 20th century. And Ridley Scott can stand on my neck for all I care. I am going to work with him. My eyes and ears are going to be wide open. And I'm going to learn something from this man. And I ended up doing a, the very first thing that I did with him was a commercial for Nissan Turbo Z. It showed one time on the Super Bowl, and then it was banned, and uh, they wouldn't show it again because they said that it promoted unsafe driving. It was, uh, it was the guy's having a dream, and it's being chased by this sort of paramilitary group, which was pushed <laughs> on a motorcycle, and then they chased it with a car, which was this Can-Am car that we painted black. Everything was painted black. Uh, his son, Jake, had done the art direction, which was friggin' brilliant. We, we shot on a... Um, an airstrip out in uh, outside of Palmdale, I think. And Jake had like built this sort of partition where the car would be driving down this runway. The partition was made out of what seemed like a mile. It wasn't that long, but it was very long of uh, four by eight mirrored plexis with, um, with these sort of, oh gosh, just these, these orbs that were between it, which were actually old 76 station signs that we painted black or they did and uh, but anyway he's being chased by this uh, motorcycle group then he's chased by this car which like i said was a can-am car every time we shot that car the car was going uh like 150 miles an hour and then it's being chased by a hawker hunter a jet fighter and of course nothing can catch it and it jumps off of the freeway and kind of goes up into the air and the jet's still going after it and it was absolutely brilliant but people said, you know, it promoted unsafe driving, which is silly because it was a dream. But the hilarious thing about that is that while they only showed it once and it was on the Super Bowl, they showed it on all these talk shows to discuss it. Like, oh, why have they banned this, this commercial? <laughs> and so they would show it and they got, you know, Nissan got all this free advertising. But um, here's what I learned. This guy had introduced him to me as this sort of, ogre nothing could have been further from the truth not only was he wide open to creative things as a matter of fact and, and he may remember it differently but the way that i remember it is that we sat down and started drawing pictures about what this thing was going to look like and i really can't remember but I, I i if it was me or somebody else but somebody said um why don't we do this without any special effects, as in no visual effects, uh, like do everything in the camera. And wow, that's the way we did it. And Amazing. It really, it, 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 the closest thing that we did to a special effect is that we ended up building a tower on the camera car. And the camera car was an unusual camera car. It was like a race camera car. And um, 
uh, it, the car would go very fast. And but we built this huge tower, and we got this cone and built what looked like the nose of the jet fighter, and it had the camera up on top of that, looking across that. That's about the closest thing that you can say was fake. But nothing was done afterwards, other than a musical score and the editing. But everything else was done in camera. I'll tell you, real, oh, wait, wait, let me just say this about Ridley and about him as a human being, because what I was told was a, you know, 180 degrees different. He was not like that. He was a gentleman, friendly, wide open with creativity and uh, a dream to work with. He was not afraid of anybody. He did not eat me for breakfast. He, um, we got along royally. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and again, if he did eat me for breakfast, so what? You know, I would have been with, with him learning from the best guy. Before him, I worked with another extremely creative director, a guy named Peter Smiley, and I have tons of stories about him. But um, it, was, it was the work I'd done with Peter that attracted Ridley. And he, he actually saw a Marlboro commercial that I'd shot with, um, with Peter Smiley, and that's what, what excited him. But anyway, I went and did that commercial with him. But I want, I want to tell you a, a really fun story about something that happened on that set. But when we were shooting that, he was editing um, um, Black Rain. And at night, at least once, maybe twice, he would have to leave the set and go back to L.A. and work on, I think he was doing a color correction at the time on Black Rain. And he would go back and do that and then come back, you know, at like 5, 36 o'clock in the morning and arrive on the set and we'd get to work. And um, after the first day of shooting, and to, let me tell you, it was wild. I mean, the stuff we were doing was just insane because we're on that camera car that would go, you know, uh, over 100 miles an hour. We were, every time we would shoot the Nissan car, it was going probably 100 miles an hour when we shoot that other car it was 150 it would go 200 but Ridley and I would be side by side on uh, two cameras screaming down this runway doing these shots were just phenomenal okay so after a day of that he then leaves and I'm thinking you know I, I got to do something to impress him and so <laughs> so while he was gone I got together with the pilots of the Hawker Hunter now, a Hawker Hunter jet fighter is not like um, uh, most jet fighters where if you've got two pilots, which are usually just one, but if there's two, they're one in front of the other. The, the Hawker Hunter, the two pilots sit side by side, okay? And this particular plane was, uh, you know, just a typical single-engine jet fighter, okay? And the two pilots that we had were like Top Gun pilots, some of the best in the world, all right? So they bring that plane over there. After he left, I talked to them and said, I would like to put a crane over the runway and I would like to do a shot where I'm shooting the car going underneath the crane and then the plane goes underneath the crane. That kind and, of rhymes. Uh, the plane and the uh, the plane and the crane. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and so the, the crane would go up like forty five feet, and so he would have to get that plane to fly underneath me. Oh my gosh! And, uh, so um, he's he's 
asked me some questions about it. I explained, you know, and showed him what sort of crane that it was. And, and it was one that, you know, it was a bucket, you know, it's like a cherry picker. And so we set it up. The first thing in the morning, we set up for that shot. Ridley doesn't even know about that shot. Ridley gets off the plane from LA. I had set up another camera behind something, I forget some set piece, where I wouldn't see him from my camera and he would get a drive by of the car with the plane going over. And so he comes back, he comes to the set. I'm already up in the bucket with my camera assistant and my key grip. And uh, Ridley comes to the base of the crane and he looks up at me and he says, what are you doing? And I tell him what the shot is. And he said, you're crazy. <laughs> and then he puts his fist in the air and says, that's great. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Amazing. So then, so then listen to this. So then he goes to his camera and I go to mine and we do that shot. And I forget how many times, I think it was three times that that plane flew underneath me which was incredible. Before we did it though, let me just say this, the, the safety officer on the set is always the key grip. I mean, you may have safety people there as well, you know, the, you know, like firemen and, and medics and things like that, but the safety officer within a regular crew is always the key grip. And I'd worked with this guy for a long time. His, his name is Tommy May. And I, I said to him, okay, um, what's our plan? Because you always have a plan if, you know, just if, especially if you're doing something dangerous, what is your plan if something goes wrong? And he looks at me and says, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what's our plan if something goes wrong? Now, I knew what the answer was, but I needed to hear it from the safety officer. And he looks at me and says, Michael, um, this time, if something goes wrong, we get maimed or die. I said, okay. And we all, all the three of us shook hands and said, okay, let's do it. And we did it. It was great. But then after that, I decided, well, I can't just do that. I got to do something else. So we took that crane, took it around to the other side of that set piece with those big balls on it. And I stood the, put the camera at the same level as the wing of the plane was flying. So the car goes by, the plane goes by. I was on like a 500 millimeter lens and this plane is coming and it, it for a brief second i had like a close-up on the pilot as he's going by literally you know in camera and Incredible. when he sat down i think he did it twice in that shot and after he sat down i went to him and i said um my camera assistant tells me that the tip of the wing was about six feet away from the camera and the guy just as cool as a cucumber looks at me and says it was five and a half feet. <laughs> you had a Top Gun flyer, didn't you? Wow, that guy flying the plane and your crew was spectacular. Wow. It was great. It was great. But then after that, I went to, to the south of France with him and shot the Chanel commercials. It was really beautiful and phenomenal. And, but, um, and then after that, Ridley asked me to join his company as a director. And um, that changed everything what an honor what an honor like just it, it was risk, what your risk taking your eye your vision your knowledge your expertise is extraordinary you're very kind mm -hmm. yeah well okay so we we have a few minutes to go for part one but i want to see like you have you worked with some other directors you briefly spoke of do you want to share um a film that you worked with with one of them and talk about the film shots of, of a, another film 
You know, I, I, I actually, there's there's a number of, um, for instance, I've done a few movies with Sean McNamara. He's he's a really interesting, smart guy to work with. I, I, I like working with him. He, uh, he He's known by a lot of people for doing Soul Surfer. Uh, what was it? Uh, Soul, Soul Surfer. And um, a, a brilliant guy. He's just uh, another guy that, like, really lifts the crew and takes people, you know, to their, you know, their, their their apex of their of their talent but i worked with some other people particularly in advertising like um i worked with uh, stephen frears you know who did prick up your ears and oh um dangerous liaison and um um the grifters he's a wonderful fella good gracious um then um ron maxwell I worked with him and we were actually, Ron and I were doing a movie about George Washington that uh, unfortunately got shut down two weeks before we went to production. I was um, on that job for five and a half months doing research and planning and on location in Virginia. And the wonderful thing about working on a period piece with Ron Maxwell is that he's adamant that uh, the period is respected and that we do everything correct, you know, for the period. And so we would hold production meetings weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, going over portions of the, of the script and talking in depth about everything that we were doing. Because also there were, there were battle scenes that we were going to do that were very complicated. And uh, he's very good at that. He's done some serious battle scenes in his films. And um, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because just shooting film in general, is sort of like you know it's very militaristic the the hierarchy is militaristic the the way that you have to work and the way that you move the army from one location to another is very militaristic and so when you're actually shooting a military film such as a film about george washington or you know robert e lee or what have you then um these things really come into play because you're actually moving battles from one place to another and how do you cover it how do you tell that story amazing so it got it got it so after all that work it, it they didn't do it or are they planning on doing it now or it, it never got uh, you know it, he, i don't know you know that was some years ago and they that, that was just another one of those sort of really unfortunate things that happens in this crazy business it was really that some investors got some funny idea that there was something wrong with the budget that there was money missing and it was really just somebody in the accounting department had to, you know, misplaced a decimal point or something because they shut us down, brought in, you know, forensic accountants and oh my uh, gosh. came back and said, mm, it was there all along. Oh. It was a mistake. And it certainly wasn't anybody really in production's mistake. It was just, you know, I, I don't know how it happened. I mean, you know, I was a DP, so <laughs> I, was out, I was out of that stuff, but, uh, you're like, Ron I can Maxwell give you a great is, shot. <laughs> Ron Maxwell is incredibly talented and, um, and a very good uh, human being. Uh, other than that, you know, it's like uh, there, there's other people like Philip Borsos. I worked with him. He did the Gray Fox, but he's unfortunately passed away. God bless him. He was also a great guy to work with. Um, Peter Smiley was an interesting guy to work with because he was so bleeding talented and he had, he was like Ridley in that he had a, 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 such a great eye, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was an artist and, um, 
but he did he did nothing but advertising and music videos but i worked with him for years and we did so many the great thing about working with him like one of the first jobs i did with him was a commercial for a product called kellogg's muslix and we went with like four people uh, there was maybe maybe there were six people on the crew including peter and myself but we went and shot this thing emulating flemish paintings and went to the you know the south of france we shot a little bit in switzerland but we were seven weeks just driving around looking for beautiful things and then we would you know do some calculations and figure out exactly where the sun was going to be exactly when and we'd go into town do a little casting and we'd go back and shoot and when that commercial was released actually uh john houston was supposed to do the voiceover and he actually died while we were doing the shoot oh my gosh and then max von seindau did it and it was friggin amazing it was the fastest growing product in america if you're doing advertising that's a very important thing but it was the fastest growing product in america after that that series of advertisements came out i again was in my 20s when i shot that and suddenly that thing came out and all these people thought like well who is the dp of that that's what really made my career was that particular campaign and working with peter smiley and people had this idea that i had to be like this old english guy <laughs> but no i was this long-haired young guy that you know uh just happened to have fallen in the right vats of whatever and came out smelling like a rose Oh, my brother used to say that to me that I was the most consistent person to fly. I don't know how he was saying I was falling in these bats, but you know, I I I I was I was very fortunate for a, a period of time that I like to think was the real golden age of advertising, which was the 80s and 90s. You know, so everybody wants to say the 50s was, but that's only because it was new. But oh. the time that 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 industry had the finance to put into these things well and let's do in a part let's do in a part one and then we'll continue so um uh, filmatics continue with us for part two with michael gibbons <laughs>